I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Tom LaRocca about some of his recent work in the field of aging science. But first, let's take a deep dive into the backstory of the Delta variant. We all know about the growing surge in coronavirus cases caused by the highly contagious Delta variant. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, Delta caused almost 90% of all cases in the U.S. in the last two weeks of July. The weekly average has risen from 13,500 daily cases in early June to 100,000 this week. At the same time, an internal CDC document that leaked last week says the variant may make people sicker than other variants. First, let me remind you what a variant is. Viruses, like all organisms, have to copy their genetic material when they reproduce. Mistakes in the copying are inevitable. And more common in viruses because of their simplicity. And remember that viruses can only reproduce within an infected individual. Each and every sick person becomes an incubator for viral reproduction, as well as for experiments in viral evolution. This is because some of the mistakes in copying the genetic code may make the new virus better at evading current treatment. Of course, such beneficial mistakes, aka variants, are rare, but when there are billions of new viruses being produced within a single sick person, they're inevitable. So what is this mistake, technical term mutation, in the Delta variant? Before I can explain what the mutation does, a little biology of the virus. It has to get into our cells, which are typically cells in the respiratory tract, by attaching or binding to a protein on the cell surface. The virus does this attachment using one of its own proteins, called the spike protein. Delta has a mutation or change in the spike protein that allows it to bind more strongly to the human cell. In addition, this change in the spike protein also makes it easier for the virus to then enter the cell. But that's not all. This mutation in the spike protein also changes the way our immune system sees the virus. To explain why this is, I have to tell you a little about our immune system. We've all heard about antibodies, the proteins the immune system makes after we get vaccinated. But there's another part of the immune system that relies on blood cells called white cells to protect us. Some of these white cells travel the body looking for infected cells and then kill them. The Delta variant's altered form of the spike protein makes it harder for the white cells to recognize an infected cell. This means the virus can grow and reproduce more efficiently in the cells that it inhabits. And remember, it can more easily get into those cells in the first place. All of this means it's easier for Delta to infect you, and once it does, it makes more viruses that then have an easier time infecting others. And we know that even having been vaccinated doesn't prevent infection by Delta. That's because although vaccines are excellent at generating blood-borne antibodies, they're not as good at generating a form of antibody that enters the lining of the nose and throat. There's a window of time when a fast-replicating variant like Delta can get into cells replicate like crazy, maybe even cause symptoms, and then be released to infect others. If you have been vaccinated, the immune system does figure it out and eventually sends bloodborne antibodies that take out the virus in the nose and throat. So even though vaccinated and unvaccinated patients infected with Delta had similar viral loads upon initial diagnosis, vaccinated individuals clear the infection much faster. 
In this and other recent studies, the vaccine was shown to be protective against infection and severe symptoms. These results come from studies presented last week in the preprint forum MedRx and the online site for Cellhost and Microbe last month. Recently, I spoke with Tom LaRocca, professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Fort Collins. His background is in molecular biology and physiology, but he's particularly interested in translational research. That's using laboratory science to develop practical applications or treatments that can help people. As you'll hear in the interview, he's very interested in the biology of health span, that is, the period of life during which we're healthy and productive, and in research on ways to extend health span. Tom is also a former high school chemistry teacher and college instructor, and I think you'll hear that clarity in his explanations. Welcome to the show, Tom, and thanks for talking to us today. Thanks, Beth. Happy to be here. Yeah, so you've done a lot of really interesting work on aging, and we're going to get a chance to talk about some of that. But first of all, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in aging research? Yeah, sure. Uh, somewhat inadvertently, really. Um, I studied biology in college, and then I actually taught high school chemistry for a bit and decided I wanted to go back to graduate school, but I was convinced I wanted to do something that really involved um, people, something applied, and so I looked into physiology programs, and I was very much a, a mediocre recreational athlete at the time doing triathlons, and I thought I would go in and study exercise physiology and performance and VO2 max and all these cool things you hear about in the Tour de France. Um, but it turned out that I, I got uh, pulled into a lab that studies aging at CU Boulder. And I realized pretty quickly actually that that overlapped with my interests pretty well in that um, aging really affects everything about us of course, across the course of our lives, and that includes athletic performance. And I remember being at, at races and things and seeing these masters athletes, even into their 70s and 80s, who were really out there just killing it in these long triathlon races and thinking that was so cool and trying to understand the biology of how somebody ages like that versus unsuccessfully, which happens to many folks, became really interesting to me. And so so I spent a lot of time uh, investigating that in my PhD work and then also in my, in my postdoctoral work, which was also at CU Boulder. And then, of course, you talk in some of your publications about the converse that exercise supports healthy aging as well. Yes, absolutely. I think um, if there's one thing that you could confidently recommend to just about anybody to age well and age successfully in a healthy fashion, that would be regular exercise. Yeah, it's so interesting to me that when I think about all this talk about aging and longevity and, you know, supplements and experimental therapies, really the two most proven ways of um, extending healthy life are exercise and eating right. That's absolutely right. So easy for all of us in theory, although I know for a lot of people, exercise is not an easy thing. But um at least yes, I, I mean, I, I do always like to remind people that it doesn't have to be 
lots of intense exercise, you know, just getting out there and walking on a regular basis really has, it can go a long way. Yeah. And in fact, nobody's really done the, the double blind placebo controlled dose response study for how much exercise or even what kind of exercise we should be getting as we get older. Mm -hmm. And those are hard studies to do in the context of aging and, and your lifespan too, right? Because if you really want to do that right, you follow people over very long periods of time and, and trying to randomize people to those kinds of uh, treatments or interventions like you described is nearly impossible for, for that kind of time. Right. But speaking of interventions, um, when you were in graduate school, you did some interesting work on interventions like um, a supplement that's called MitoQ that protects mitochondria and looking at the effect of various supplements and um, therapeutics to protect arterial health. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those studies. Sure, yeah, that gets back to what I was describing before about the biology of aging that I was interested in in my graduate work. And this is all work that I did in um, the Integrated Physiology of Aging Lab at C. Boulder and the professor that runs that is Doug Seals. And uh, the, at the time, at least, what the lab was focused on was cardiovascular aging. So how your heart and arteries age and, and how biological events that unfold as we age really influence that. And so I became really interested in what some people call cellular quality control. So the ability and all the different processes that happen in the cell um, in which the cell maintains exactly what it sounds like, the quality of its, of its internal components. So if you have damaged proteins, enzymes in the cell, then the cell needs to recycle those. And that would include components of the cell like mitochondria, which are an organelle within the cell. And so mitochondria typically become increasingly damaged, just like most other things as we age, but mitochondria play this critically important role in the cell of producing energy. And so it's really important that cells are able to recycle those and generate new mitochondria. And so uh, we became interested in the fact that the ability of cells to do that, to recycle these damaged molecules, organelles like mitochondria seems to decline as we get older. And in, in that particular work that we were doing, again, we were focused on the cardiovascular system. So that really seems to be true in our arteries. And so that at least in part explains why our arteries don't function quite as well as we get older, why they get uh, more stiff and less able to do what they need to do in terms of conducting blood throughout the body. And, and then the next obvious question becomes, well, is there anything that we can do to prevent that? And, and we can prevent it uh, with exercise and, and healthy diet, just like you described, those actually seem to have an impact on cellular quality control but not everybody can do that. And so uh, perhaps there are complementary things that we can do like supplements. And so we did study MitoQ, which is an antioxidant that's targeted to mitochondria so that it could specifically reduce some of the damage in mitochondria. And we, we studied a couple of other um, nutraceuticals, we would call them. So nutritional compounds that have almost pharmaceutical-like effects that were targeted at uh, increasing a particular process of cellular recycling called autophagy or autophagy. And that also, again, recycles damaged molecules and things like mitochondria. So I'll just interject for people that aren't too familiar with biology, a mm -hmm. couple things. Um, so 
first, the, the story that I always like to tell when I was teaching introductory biology about the significance of mitochondria is that we can visualize how important they are to our lives because if you um, take a poison that affects mitochondria, that, that poisons the mitochondria, that's something like cyanide. And everybody knows those poison pills in the James Bond movies and other films that, you know, those are pretty instantly lethal. And that's just an example of how important mitochondria are. If you shut them down within a couple minutes, you're a goner. It, it just goes away. And, and also that process that you're talking about in the arteries, it's that process of stiffening is such a complex process and all these different factors um, that we've been talking about, like exercise and diet can play a role in that as can um, just good healthy mitochondria because when a cell is functioning correctly, then um, it can clear the gunk out and it's less likely to be damaged and it's the damage to those cells in the arteries that cause this process of arterial stiffening that contributes to high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. So just a little side clarification there. That's great. Absolutely right. Yep. So you gave people, we probably started with animals with MitoQ. We did. We did. In fact, that was the most of the work that I was directly involved in. And then the lab has followed up on it since, um, and not when I was there, but um, transitioning to uh, testing the compound in people. And what did you find in animals? So in animals, it, it did what we expected and what we hoped it would do, which was that it improved the ability of their arteries to function in, in old animals specifically. So uh, the, one of the primary outcomes that we would look at is the ability of arteries to dilate in response to stimulus. And so this is a very important thing in addition to the stiffening that you were describing um, that, that happens and changes as we age is that our arteries become less able to dilate when they need to. And this is something they need to do all the time. So when you stand up and walk, you need to uh, conduct blood to the, all the muscles in your body that are involved in, in that activity, or even when you're thinking very hard, you need increased blood flow to the brain. And so the arteries need to dilate and allow the blood to flow to those regions. And so what you see in, in older humans and mice, in this case is what we were studying, is that the dilation in response to a stimulus is reduced compared to young animals or younger humans. Um, but in those studies with the MitoQ, it actually restored the ability of the arteries to dilate. That's pretty impressive. And yes, um, yeah. yeah, so um, in mice, it works really well. And did you see a similar uh, size effect in people or was it maybe less so? It was comparable in people. Yeah, um, I haven't uh, looked at that data recently, but it did work in people as well. Okay, okay. So I think we've, we've convinced our listeners that aging is something that um, one can experience either more or less successfully. And there's things you can do to ensure successful, healthy aging. So let's go on and, and talk about some of your more recent work because it's a little bit different in terms of its focus, but it's really fascinating, the story that you have about these things in our genomes called repetitive elements. So maybe you can explain what those are. They're kind of weird. <laughs> they are, yeah. And, um, and I have my postdoctoral mentor, Chris Link, to blame for my interest. <laughs> So after my graduate work, I, I went on to a, a postdoc 
at CU Boulder also um, with Chris Link, who studies the biology of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And I, I didn't intend to get into this area at all, but um, his lab at the time was very interested in studying these using computational biology approaches in particular, looking at the genetics or the, the genomic, I would say, influences on, on those things on neurodegenerative diseases. And Chris was particularly interested in what you just described, these things called repetitive elements. And it's a fascinating story um, that some people might be familiar with from uh, high school or college biology, actually. So Barbara McClintock is pretty famous. She got the Nobel Prize, actually, for discovering what we call transposable elements. So these are um, parts of the genome that are not actually our own genes exactly, but they are um, elements that have accumulated over time in the genome that don't code for the proteins that make up our cells, but um, are repeated throughout the genome. And some of them, the ones that Barbara McClintock was interested in at first, actually have the ability to sort of self-copy and replicate and change places in the genome. She called them, or other people have called them jumping genes. Uh, but that's, in any case, um, transposable elements is one specific type of repetitive element. They're exactly what they sound like, these repetitive sequences that occur numerous times throughout the genome. Uh, many people have sort of thought about them as junk DNA um, for a long time and really ignored them. But they make up almost, well, more than 50% of the genome. And so, so if you pause even for just a second and think about that, it doesn't pass the sniff test of evolution, right? Nothing makes it through, through millions of years of evolution as junk. And so there's a, a big push in um, multiple fields of biology these days to figure out what exactly these repetitive elements do. And I sort of realized that nobody knows what they're doing in the context of aging, which is what I was originally interested in. So we, we sort of set out to investigate that over the last couple of years. And just to put that figure that you uh, just told us 50% in perspective, Mm -hmm. um, people should realize that the genes that we have that actually code for proteins, and that's what genes do, they are the information that tells the body how to build the proteins, and proteins, of course, uh, enable us to do everything we do. We are basically the sum of all our proteins. Anyway, those genes that code for proteins are about 5% of our genome. So our genome, our, our totality of DNA consists of way more of these weird repetitive elements than our actual functional genes. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and you know, depending who you ask, I've actually heard um, lower numbers than that. Some folks will say it's almost 2% of the genome is protein coding. Pretty staggering. <laughs> really. Yeah. So 50% of our genome and what, what's it doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've, you've got some insights into this. We, we think so. Um, so, in general, well, this is not uh, not true for all repetitive elements, but many of them, especially some of the transposable elements that I was just describing, um, evolutionarily, they have a, a retroviral type history. So they're parasitic types of sequences that have invaded the genome from viruses, for example. Uh, and, and so you can imagine that uh, the cell would most of the time want these things to be 
inactive and suppressed. So you don't want endogenous retroviruses, you know, going to town and being active in your cells all the time. And that, and that does seem to be true. Most repetitive elements and repetitive sequences, especially transposons are inactive in the genome. But what we started to find is that if we looked at aging and we looked at young adults versus middle-aged adults versus older-aged adults, um, or even other organisms, mice and C. elegans, which is a tiny microscopic worm that many people, including Chris Link at CU study, we would see this age-related, very progressive increase in activation of these repetitive sequences with aging as, as people got older or as animals got older that these repetitive sequences seem to become activated and we could detect that because we would see more RNA being transcribed from the DNA if people remember that from biology. And so you you talked earlier about the evolutionary significance of these things that we maintain them probably because they have some role to play. So do you think, do you speculate that as we get older, the mechanisms we have that keep them in check decline? Yes, yes, that's what we think. Um, there are folks who are very interested in uh, understanding what you just described, uh, what they're actually doing in the genome. And they, many of them actually have been sort of co-opted to play very important roles in the genome, like controlling the activation and expression of other genes and things like that. But, but to your point in general, uh, we do think that for the most part, the cell should be suppressing them, but just like with everything else in the cell, uh, we, what happens with aging is that those systems seem to deteriorate and, and they're not being suppressed as much as they should be. And so to, to go back more directly to the things that you have been working on in your lab, if I understand it correctly, you have developed kind of a clock that correlates, the hands on the clock might correlate with expression of different of these repeating elements in the genome so that you can kind of tell how old someone is based on how many or what kind of these repetitive elements you find in them? Yes, that's right. So, so we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Um, so we noticed that and, and have published this actually that healthy lifestyle behaviors, just like we were talking about earlier, like exercise and diet, actually seem to reduce the activation of these repetitive sequences. And that at least suggests that they might actually matter in terms of the trajectory of your aging and health. And so, so we got the idea that um, we might actually be able to predict somebody's age or even better what people refer to as biological age. And the basic idea there is that, uh, you know, I might be 43 years old, which I am, but if I don't get enough sleep, which I don't, <laughs> and then even though my chronological age is 43, perhaps my biological age, so the, the health of my cells actually maybe is 50 or something like that, or, or vice versa, right? So fortunately I do still exercise. So if I were exercising enough and eating just right, even though my chronological age is 43, my biological age, might be 35 or something like that, which would be great. Yeah, yeah. So do you think you'll have people beating down your door, you know, getting you to test their their DNA for repetitive elements so they can figure <laughs> out their biological age? <laughs> I don't know. I, we've we've considered the idea of trying to really chase down the, the clock, quote unquote, the clock angle of this. 
Um, there's a lot of interest in clocks that can predict biological age or biomarkers that can predict biological age. And it can be those those clocks or markers can be anything as simple as cholesterol levels or circulating um, proteins that tell you something about inflammation, all the way up to these genomic things like what we're doing here, where we're where we're profiling profiling the whole genome and looking at certain features of it. Um, so certainly, what I just described is is very niche in in terms of the analyses that you need to do and it's pretty technical and it would be certainly much simpler if you can measure one simple thing in a blood sample um, but but there's a lot of uh, discussion and controversy over which of these clocks might be the most accurate and what we did find at least was that our repetitive element based clock was very very accurate in terms of predicting age Oh, that's very cool. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there because we're running out of time. But I do recall that when you were in Boulder, you and um, some other people in the integrative physiology department had developed a website. And I hear that you're um, working on resurrecting that. So will that will I be able to link to that for people hearing this show that would be interested in finding out more? Yes, absolutely. I can send you the link. So I've moved up to CSU in Fort Collins, and we have a new Center for Healthy Aging up here. Uh, and I've sort of taken most of the content up here with me, but we still collaborate with C Boulder on this too. So I can um, steer you to the link for the page. Fantastic. Okay, I'll, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. And uh, thanks for talking, Tom. It's really interesting work you're doing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Tom LaRocca, professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Fort Collins. He was talking to me about his research into the science of human aging, particularly some of his recent work, which has identified genetic marks of our biological age, as opposed to our chronological age, which is the number of years one has under their belt. I will link to his website as well as the Healthy Aging website that he and his colleagues maintain to provide information on, well, healthy aging. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer, and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, additional music from Richard Strauss. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material from the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. 